Oh, that, that'll never get old. Um, but I, I praise God when I think about the, the gifts that we just got to give, and especially even our children and what they gave, just how people will hear about Jesus through those gifts. You know, it's, it, it's, it's, it's hard to, to see and even imagine the eternal impact that just putting some coins and some bills in there will have, yet God promises us that it will. Uh, and Pastor Carlos shared last week what they're going to be doing, going to unreached places in the Amazon jungle. And uh, I just, I look forward to hearing how God will use those gifts. So church, thank you. Thank you for being a part of that. Also, everybody, thank you for giving your feedback on Sandy Hollow. It was helpful for Dale and I as we thought about uh, that Sunday service. And I'm looking forward to it. So uh, it'll be a different Sunday for sure, but uh, it'll be good. All right, church, uh, we are not going to read the scripture beforehand today because it is a full chapter, but we'll be reading it throughout the sermon. So let me uh, just kind of dive in. I'm going to give you a little kind of his- like a, a, a little anecdote from history that I find particularly interesting. In the 1980s, there was a guy named Stanislav Petrov. Stanislav Petrov. He was a duty officer at the, at the command center for a nuclear early warning system in the Soviet Union. So he was a Soviet military guy, and uh, his job was basically if the U.S. launched an attack, the system that he was in charge of would register that attack, and it was his job to then report that kind of up the chain of command, saying, hey, the U.S. is attacking. And of course, then the USSR would retaliate with a large-scale attack of their own. Well, on September 26th, 1983, the system gave an alarm. And it said that the U.S. had launched several nuclear missiles. Well, if Petrov, the guy in charge, were to pass that information along, it probably would have resulted in all-out nuclear war. But Petrov believed that the system was malfunctioning, and so he didn't report it. Instead, he said, this is a false alarm. We're not going to pass this up the chain. And he was correct. It was a false alarm. Petrov did this primarily because he didn't think that the U.S. would attack in a way that the system said they were attacking. It was, it was registering only a few missiles. And he says, no, if the U.S. is really our enemy and wants to do damage, they're going to attack in force. So he said, I don't think this is true. Well, in contrast to Petrov that, day, this, that one day, and I'm using this as an example of kind of the opposite of the reality that we're in, we are in a war, and we do have an enemy that is seeking to all-out attack us. But we live, oftentimes, with our heads stuck in the spiritual sand, saying, ah, it's not that bad, or a war isn't really happening. We refuse to acknowledge just the spiritual truths that we are facing an enemy, and we are in a battle. I hope that our passage today wakes us up to the spiritual reality around us. Should wake us up from our spiritual sleep. We're in this series, Unexpected, Expected Deliverance. In the chapter that we're coming to today, the story basically introduces its major conflict, and the narrative kind of dives downwards, and we're left asking the question, what will God do? What will God's people do? 
The passage today is going to force us to wrestle with the reality of an enemy, an enemy who seeks our destruction, the reality of evil, the reality of battle, and yet God is still not mentioned. And He's not going to be mentioned in the entire book. But even so, He is delivering, He is working, but He's doing it in unexpected ways. And I hope that today's passage will help us to see clearly. So let me uh, pray, and we'll dive in. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. Help us to be ready to hear with soft hearts and awaken us to the truth and the reality around us. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let me give you our first point as we start reading so that uh, you can be on the lookout for it. Here's this. God's people should expect their faithfulness to bring opposition. God's people should expect their faithfulness to bring opposition. All right, you'll get to see this again, so if you don't, didn't get to write it down, that's okay. Starting in verse 1, let's see how their faithfulness brings opposition. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him, but Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants, who were at the king's gate, said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So, as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. All right, so, in this section we're introduced to the main conflict of the book. We meet this guy, Haman. Haman the Agagite. Now, we may look at that and you're like, okay, I, that doesn't really mean anything to me in my 21st century American life. What the heck is an Agagite and why is this important? Well, this is a reference back to 1 Samuel 15. There was a group of people called the Amalekites. They were enemies of the people of God. They were living in the promised land. And when the people of God were moving into the promised land... The Amalekites opposed them. God basically ordered them to be wiped out. They didn't wipe them out entirely. And so several centuries later, when Saul is king, God commands Saul and says, look, I need you to destroy the Amalekites. Well, Saul was a little bit disobedient in that command. He destroyed most of them, but he spared their king, Agag. Agag. So then when we're encountering this guy, Haman, the Agagite, he is a descendant of this king, Agag. And we see in 1 Samuel 15, when we get the record of, of Saul basically not killing, uh, not killing Agag, that was the straw that broke the camel's back. And God, as a result, rejected Saul as king. So here is this guy, Haman, whose very existence, whose very existence is basically an offense to God's people because of who he is and how he and his people have opposed God. We get this guy, and it's just really clear. He is the enemy. He is the enemy. 
And the author of Esther is clearly drawing our attention to these connections because if you remember Mordecai, when he's introduced in chapter 2, he's described as the son or a son of Kish or a descendant of Kish, a Benjaminite. So he is being associated with Saul, who was also of the tribe of Benjamin and also the son of Kish. So here we have Mordecai, which is he's basically in the same family line. And as Saul failed, on the one hand, to destroy Agag, here we're going to have Mordecai being faithful, and God is going to deliver his people from this descendant of Agag. Now we have Mordecai's response to uh, Haman. He doesn't bow down. He's not paying homage. He's like, no, I will not honor this guy. And the author doesn't really tell us exactly why, other than, well, this guy Haman ought not to be bowed down to because the Jews don't bow down to him. That's really all we're told. We're given no more information, but it's almost, well, it's presented as if the audience, the original audience, would have just been like, oh yeah, of course. Of course we don't bow down to him. So we're not really told why other than that the Jews don't do this, and it was not good and proper for them to do that. All of this is presented positively that Mordecai would not bow down. Now it's clear Mordecai isn't seeking to be insubordinate to the king. He's accused, you're, you're trespassing, you're, you're not following the king's command. He commanded you to bow down. And you're not bowing down, so you must be in rebellion against King Ahasuerus. But remember back to last week, Mordecai saved the king. He's not out to get the king. He's not out to undermine the king. He's not seeking to defy the king. He's saying, I just can't honor Haman. Mordecai is part of the people of God, and so he will not bow. Now, in the Old Testament, the people of God are defined ethnically. They're the descendants of Abraham. And here, in our day and age, I'm using this term, the people of God, to describe the church. You may be wondering, okay, Mark, what's, what's the difference here? What, what, are, are, how, how are you referring to them and us as the kingdom of God? Well, I believe that the church, we have been grafted in to God's people. So when we see in the Old Testament, how did God treat His people? How does He deal with His people? What promises does He make to His people? Well, we too get to be heirs to those promises because we have been grafted in. We are the people of God. So when we read these stories, there are stories as well. Even though we, most of us at least, are not ethnically Jewish, we are still now at least part of the people of God. All right, so let's connect this whole thing a little bit more to today. Well, we often fail to stand. We are more than willing to bow down to the Hamans of our day. We will bow down to whatever our culture bows down. We see everybody else bowing down, and we say, well, I'll bow down too. And there's two big reasons. One is fear. It's kind of obvious. I don't want to lose what I have. I don't want to upset people. But I think a bigger one that we really need to, to think well about is ignorance. I think oftentimes we bow down to the Hamans around us and to the idols around us because we're simply ignorant. We don't realize that we're not supposed to bow down to those things. And we decide that we're going to look like everybody else around us and we will just bow. So what are we bowing to? Well, last week I, I talked a little bit, or maybe it was two weeks ago, I can't remember at this point, I talked a little bit about Pride Month. That's kind of the low-hanging fruit. You know, the culture around us goes bananas, and 
loves kind of self-autonomy and self-declaration uh, of who I am. And so I don't really want to go there this week. But instead I want to say, what are the cultural idols that we have here? Northwest Iowa, Sioux County, Sioux Center. What are the things that we're ignorant of and the Hamans that we seek to bow down to? I think one of the things that we are very tempted to worship here is the success of our children. Now, don't get me wrong. We should want our children to succeed. God has entrusted our children to us, and we need to look after their good. We want them to be well-rounded. We want them to thrive. Those are good and godly things. But the culture around us basically tells us that we have to sacrifice everything in order to make sure that our children have everything. But I think the scriptures call us to something incredibly different. We need to be showing our children what it looks like to have Jesus be their everything. Some of you in our church have shared this with me, to where maybe it's a sporting event or a music thing or just even something at school, and it conflicts with something at church, maybe even Sunday morning worship. That's not entirely common, but that does happen. And you've had to tell the coach, the teacher, the music director, whoever, hey, I can't be there. And he or she will get mad at you. How could you let the team down? We need you. And it's because we, our culture around us idolizes those things. Well, it's going to be bad for your child if your child's not here. Your child needs to fully have this experience. And we end up doing too much. It even comes to the point where if we as a church, or really any organization for that matter, if we wanted to have a mission trip, would we be able, especially for our teenagers, our children, our families, would we be able to actually have the trip or would too many of us be too busy to go? Which is ultimately, in light of eternity, going to be better for our children? If what we're really looking for is the betterment of our children, will it be them going and serving or getting to see people serve, getting to see people share the gospel? Or will it be this extracurricular activity over here? Now again, I want you to hear me clearly. I am not trying to poo-poo extracurricular stuff. I want you to seek the good of your children and have well-rounded kids. But can we as a church... Be radical and say to our kids, you know what? Your walk with Christ is more important than you doing this other thing over here. Are we willing to take that stand? Because I think in our community, that's a Haman. We all just kind of bow down to it. And it's twisted too because the en the en we have an enemy. We're going to get there later today. But we have an enemy that tries to convince us that everything's okay and that the things we're worshiping really aren't that bad. He takes good things and twists them to where that good thing becomes bad. He perverts it. We have an enemy. And as we live radical lives, as we don't bow to those things, you will face opposition. People will look at you and be like, you're letting us down. You're part of that weird group over there. You're super spiritual. We don't like that. It's like, no, I want to be normal. I want to like the things everybody else likes. But we should welcome the opposition 
God's people should expect their faithfulness to bring opposition. All right, so what's this opposition going to look like? You know, Haman's upset. He wants to destroy God's people. And as we're going to see in the story, it moves from slander to destruction. So, here's our second point. God's people should expect to be slandered. God's people should expect to be slandered. You can see that the points today are mostly framed around the idea of expect. Today, there's not going to be a lot of do. It's more kind of changing our mind about things. And it's all about things we should just expect, which things that we should open our eyes to. We should expect to be slandered. All right, let's pick it up in verse 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast poor, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. All right, let's pause here and unpack this a bit, see what's going on. What the heck is Haman doing? He's casting lots for something. He's trying to figure out the day of divine favor. This is something that they would do in the Persian world. They wanted to see, okay, which day do the gods most favor? So they're casting lots to find that day, and they figure out, okay, it is the 12th month in the month of Adar. That's when the day of divine favor is going to be. That's when he wants to see his plan enacted. That's when he wants to see the destruction of the Jews happen here. And then he brings, once he figures out the day of favor, he's like, all right, I'm ready. And he brings to the king this wicked and evil plan. And specifically, he brings these different accusations, three accusations against this scattered people. This people that kind of are just all over the place. Does it sound familiar, by the way? Kind of like God's people now, we're all over the place. The first accusation, he says, their laws are different. They're weird. They're strange. Which is true. They dressed differently. They ate differently. They behaved differently. Specifically sexually, they didn't participate in the things that the culture around them didn't, did. They were different. And then he goes on. But that, so that's clearly true. We start with the truth. And then we start to twist it. They don't keep the king's laws. Well, is that true or is that false? It's murky. In many ways, they're model citizens. We saw that Mordecai saves the king. But also Mordecai is not following the king's law in bowing down to Haman. So some laws they follow and some laws they don't. And then he concludes with the third accusation, it's not profitable for you to keep them. And that is just a bold-faced lie. Mordecai saved the king's life, and we're going to see later in the story, it's very profitable for the king to keep them alive. They are a blessing to the king. But this is the exact same thing that Satan does today. And it's what he's always done. Starts with something true and then twists it more and more until it's something very, very far from the truth. But we started with the truth and so we assume, well, maybe there's some truth to these other things here too. That's exactly what Satan does. His game has not changed. It hasn't changed one bit. He will make the rest of society think that we oppose them and that we hate them and that we want them destroyed. But we're that's not true. Our, our beliefs and where we are 
It's far, far from that. We love our neighbors and we seek the good of the city that we're in. We too are scattered all over the world. We don't have a home. We don't have a nation. We don't have safe harbor. We are a kingdom with no home, a kingdom of priests. We live as sojourners and exiles, so we are scattered. We are different. We behave differently. And there's some laws that we can't follow, but there's many laws that we can. And it is profitable for people to keep us. We are in the exact same place that the Jews were when Haman brought these accusations against them. When these accusations come against you, because of your faithfulness, don't be surprised. They will sound staggering to you. You'll be like, that can't possibly be true. Why would you think that? Don't be surprised. But we are surprised. So often, we're surprised when they come. Don't be. Imagine after Pearl Harbor, if the U.S. did nothing and then was surprised when the Japanese decided to attack again. You'd look at that and think, okay, I think we need new generals. After Pearl Harbor, it was clear, we're at war. There's an enemy out there on the other side of the ocean. Yet we're attacked by the enemy, by Satan and the world around us, almost like a Pearl Harbor, and then we kind of just go living our lives. Oh, there's no enemy out there. Everything is awesome. Everything is fine. But it's not. There's an enemy. We should expect to be slandered. All right, here's our third idea for today. God's people should expect to face threats of destruction. We should expect to face threats of destruction. So we go from slander to destruction. That was Haman's plan all along. He's not happy with just kind of creating a false image of the Jews. He wants them destroyed. So let's see this in the text. Verse 9. This is Haman still talking. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors all over the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. And it's here that we reach the low point of the whole story. 
A plan has been put in motion for God's people to be destroyed. Haman effectively bribes the king. He's like, hey, I'm going to give you an unimaginable amount of money. It's like a comical amount. The author puts it out there as being like, isn't this ridiculous? A comical amount of money just so he can destroy them all. And the king, the one who is supposed to be enforcing justice, does not even care to ask who these people are. He accepts what Haman says, and he's willing to go along with it. We'll see throughout the story that Ahasuerus just receives what everybody says. It's a mistrial and a miscarriage of justice. At the beginning of the the book, we saw that the Persian political system and its efficiency to communicate was used to kind of give out this silly decree that wives should be subject to their husband and that Vashti wasn't queen anymore. And it's kind of used as a comical thing. And here that same system is used for something dark and terrible. It's no longer funny. Instead, it's deadly serious. The best systems of the world are now aimed right at God's people. And all of the people in the Persian army, or Persian world, not just the army, are encouraged to take up arms to destroy God's people. And this is an exhaustive decree. All of God's people, all the women, all the children, all the people, period. And it's irrevocable. It's irrevocable. We saw back in the beginning that when the king gave a command in the Persian world, it was irrevocable. And here he gives another command through Haman. And it seems like there is no answer. As we get to the end of the book, we'll see that this command is never redacted. This command is not overwritten. We'll see another command comes into play. But here we have, we're we're left with this question, what is going to happen? Where will deliverance come from? Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, is the enemy of the Jews. He sits down to drink. And that shows us just the callousness of it all. He's callous. That's senseless evil. He's a wicked man. And I want to dwell here for just a little bit and recognize the tragedy and reality of evil. Because we like to hold it at arm's length and say, oh, this this isn't real or this isn't as serious. But it is real. We can't pretend like it's not there. Children are stolen and trafficked. There is a senseless war happening right now because of the pride and lust for power of one man. People are starving in North Korea. Christians are executed there because one man wants to be worshipped as God. Churches are bulldozed And pastors are imprisoned in China because those pastors dare to gather together with their churches. They dare to speak against an evil and corrupt government. This evil is all around us. And we have an enemy that wants to blind us to the reality of its existence. But it's not just that terrible evil out there. It's the evil within here, the evil amongst all of us, That's maybe not as bad as trafficking children, but it's bad in the eyes of a holy and just God. And the enemy wants to convince us that everything is just okay. It's okay, but it's not. We have an enemy that is seeking our destruction. 
We'll see more of that in a minute, but I just want to remind us, God's people should expect to face threats of destruction. So, with this threat of destruction, that this threat for us as believers in this context is not necessarily that somebody is threatening to come and bulldoze our church or that somebody wants to arrest me as the pastor or that somebody wants to fire you right now because you're a believer. It's unlikely where we are. But what the enemy does want to do to destroy us is to get us to yield ground piece by piece and say, well, I'm not going to I'm not going to stand up for Christ here or I'm just going to see my spiritual life as this piece of my life over here. Imagine your life as a kind of a pie chart. And the part for Jesus is my Sunday mornings. It's right here. It's this little sliver. Or maybe it's even every day, that little slice in the morning when I have my quiet time and read my Bible, as opposed to the whole pie chart belonging to the Lord. And Satan convinces us that just this little part belongs to God. And we are faced with choice after choice after choice. And we choose the wrong thing after the wrong thing after the wrong thing. And as we do that, we slowly but surely lose the battle against a really real enemy. And we don't see that our destruction is his end goal. All right. So what does the Lord want us to understand? If these are things we should expect, what do we what do we under, what does he want us to understand? How do we need to open our eyes? Well, it's three things. It's really simple. Here's the first one. God wants us to understand the seriousness of the battle. The seriousness of the battle. We need to wake up. Ephesians chapter 6 says this, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The New Testament says we are in a fight. Now, church, I don't share these things this morning to shame us or to say that, ah, you know, woe is us because we haven't been paying attention. It is true that we need to wake up more, but all of us in some way, myself included, we're asleep. That's why we see constant calls from the disciples to say, be alert, wake up. The need for armor, put on the whole armor of God, indicates that there's a battle going on. You don't put armor on just for fun. It's kind of miserable to walk around in and is a little useless in day-to-day life. You put on armor when you're in a fight. And the enemy is fighting us with apathy, saying, just live your life, be complacent, be lukewarm. There's no battle, but there is. We also need to see the seriousness of our enemy. There's a real battle happening, and we have a serious enemy. He wants your soul. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Do you believe that there's a lion out there seeking to devour you? The enemy wants to convince us that the main battle and the main war is out there, the cultural battle around us. Now, there is a cultural battle raging around us. Don't get me wrong. We need to be active and stand up for the truth and say, this is good and godly to be this way. There is a battle. However, the main battle is for our soul and exists within the life of our church. 
We have an enemy who wants to devour us. We have an enemy that wants our very soul. Now, up to this point, there hadn't been much hope, right? You may be like, Pastor Martin, this, this is like a really like heavy sermon. But there is hope. Because God wants, to see, wants us to see the seriousness of our deliverer. You may wonder, where the heck is God in this passage? We looked at it and it's like this, this, this downward spiral into nothing. Where is God? He's there. There's three, three kind of specific things that you can see. First off is just even the, the, the passage as a whole. God is kind enough to warn us and say these things happen. There is a battle. It is real. There is evil. That is the kindness of God to basically say, church, know that there is a battle and you need to wake up and fight. He is kind in that. But secondly, there's the timing of the event of when all of this happens. You see, Haman is trusting in lots. Well, what does the God of the universe have to say about lots? It's basically like, you know, throwing dice, drawing straws, that kind of thing. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So Haman thinks he's looking for, okay, what is the favor of the gods? What's the best day to do this on? I can just see God up in heaven laughing and thinking, yeah, I'm going to pick a day for you. And it's going to be almost a year in the future from when you propose this. And because it's like a year in the future, there's going to be enough time for my people to be faithful and for me to act. So God is working. And even the day that Haman picks is not the day he thinks it is. But not only that, but look again when he proposes this. Verse 12, then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. That's the month of Nisan. Imagine this is a Wednesday. Do you know what would have been happening Thursday evening if this was a Wednesday? The Passover supper. This is happening right before Passover. So this message goes out on the 13th day of Nisan, right before Passover. The Hebrews counted their days starting in the evenings. Passover is on the 15th, so it's, this is like 24 hours basically before the reminder that God delivers His people. So where is God? He's coming. He is bringing His deliverance. Church, we do not fight this war by just gearing ourselves up and being like, okay, now I'm in a war and I'm ready to fight. We fight by recognizing God's kindness and basking in His grace and saying, yeah, there's an enemy out there, but God loves me. Yeah, enemy, you're right. I fail and I fall and you want to destroy me, but God has rescued me. The Jews would look back in this instance and remember the Passover and how God had saved them in His graciousness. We look back to the cross and we are reminded how God has saved us in His graciousness and that enables us to fight. It enables us to move forward. It enables us to oppose the enemy and endure His opposition. We should expect God to be working even when it seems like He does not. That's why we have this unexpected, expected deliverance. We see that Christ has died for us. Therefore, we can move forward. Now, really practically speaking, I do want to give you some practical things. I'm going to close up with this. How do we respond to evil? There's three basic ways. One, we lament. We just That's mourning. It's basically saying, God, this evil is real, and it's here. That's lament. It's a very biblical thing. There's a whole book called Lamentations. It's saying, Lord, this world is awful. It's lament. Secondly, we cry out. 
We say, Lord, in light of this, this terribleness around me, Lord, will you save us? We cry out. And thirdly, we just trust the Lord as we continue to walk faithfully. Now, these are going to show up in next week's passage, um, so I'm not going to unpack them very much today. Uh, but it's those three things. We lament, we cry out, and we trust the Lord as we continue to walk faithfully. In a moment, I'm going to have uh, two of our elders, Dave and Daryl, come on up, and uh, we're actually going to pray for us, or just in light of these things. We're going to lament, we're going to cry out, and we're going to trust the Lord to continue walking faithfully this morning. Um, but before that, I want to give you our big idea. Which hopefully, this is not a surprise, but be alert. You have a battle, an enemy, and a Savior. We have a battle, an enemy, and a Savior. We have got to open our eyes to those three things as we walk faithfully with the Lord. So I want to go ahead and invite up Daryl and Dave, and uh, we're just going to pray. Again, we're going to lament. We're going to cry out. Um, I believe Dave's going to start with a lament, and Daryl will, uh, crying out is basically just petitioning the Lord to rescue us, and then I will uh, close us by uh, asking the Lord to help us to walk faithfully.
Father, we worship you as the one who is in control and has all authority. Lord, you have defeated the enemy and he has no claim in this place. So Father, by faith we move forward. By faith we trust you. By faith we walk obediently. Lord, because we know that you will deliver us. We know that you are the one who has given us all good things. We know that you will redeem us and rescue us. Lord, may we see clearly today and help us to be faithful. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.